At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, this morning we're going to be concluding a sermon series that we began a number of weeks ago called King of the Mountain. And in this series, we have been looking at Jesus, the King of Kings, and as he ascends into Jerusalem for the last week of his earthly life, there are a number of different religious authorities that try to knock him off of his raft. They try to to drown him in their questions. But Jesus remains standing tall through it all. He answers their questions with excellence. In fact, he's not just adequate in his answer, but he answers their questions with perfection, which makes sense because he is a perfect God. And so Jesus remains the king of the temple mountain. And today we're going to conclude that series by looking at part four, looking at the last question that Jesus has asked in these chapters, a question that he's asked by a lawyer in chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. But before we get to those verses and see what they have to say for us, I want to just ask you a question. And the question I want to ask you is this, when was the last time you sought God's will? When was the last time that you sought God's will? And I want you to think for a moment even what you sought his will about. Now, as I ask that question and as you wrestle with it, you're probably thinking about something that happened on this one day or on these few days when you were faced with major decisions. Things like, should I marry him or her? Things like, should I take this job or should I quit this job? Should we move to this city or to that? Should we buy this home or should we buy that home? All these kinds of big questions, right? We normally associate those big questions that we ask on some days with understanding God's will, and that's appropriate. If we're to follow Jesus, then we definitely should seek him with those big questions. Where am I going to go to college? What am I going to major in? Those kinds of things. Definitely, we should seek the Lord's will and wisdom on those things. But friends, I believe that there is another category of seeking God's will that is not something we do on some days, but it's something that we do every day, or at least we should do every day. And that is the category of what does it look like for me to follow Jesus with my life today? with the very normal things that I have on my schedule, with the normal relationships that I will interact with all day, what does it look like today, not someday, but today, what does it look like today for me to follow Christ? How do I make sense of God's will for today? Another way to ask that is, what are the things that are most important for me to do? Now, this question is a question that was asked of Jesus. It actually was asked of Jesus several times. But one particular instance where this question was asked of Jesus, it was asked by a lawyer in Matthew chapter 22. And so I want us to look at the question that is asked and how Jesus answers it. And then we're going to back up and look at in three movements what is really said about what is most important. 
So we're in Matthew 22, and I want to begin in verse 34. It says this. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, friends, in those seven verses today, we're going to see three things. And we're going to organize our study again as we have throughout this series by looking at the question that is asked and then the twofold answer that Jesus provides. So let's begin with the question that is asked. What is the question that is asked here? Well, the question that is asked is simply this. We might summarize it. What matters most? Jesus, what matters most? See, Jesus had been answering all of these questions, and he had shown himself to be quite wise in his answer that he provided to each and every one. And so the Pharisees gather up again, and they try to decide what to do next. And one of those Pharisees was a lawyer, and he has a question that he wants to ask Jesus. Now, who is a lawyer? What does that mean? Now, many of you know a lawyer. And so I want you to just imagine what a a lawyer is in our world. And don't think bad thoughts. There are some lawyers in this room, okay? Um, but, but just think for a moment. When we think of lawyer, we think of someone who maybe works in, in corporate law or, or someone that works in a courtroom and those kinds of things. But in the first century, remember, the Old Testament era, the nation of Israel operated under a theocracy. God was at the top. Their constitution was the Old Testament. So a lawyer in the first century was someone who spent their time studying the Old Testament. And not only did they study this Old Testament, but they transcribed it. They wrote it down so that others could have copies of it to read for themselves. That's why Mark calls this not a lawyer in Mark's parallel account of this story. He calls him not a lawyer, but a scribe. So this is someone who spent his life studying the Old Testament and copying it so that others would have their own copy. This expert in the law comes up to Jesus and asks him a question about what matters the most. Now, when he comes up and asks Jesus this question, it's not totally out of left field. This is a a question that would have been a part of the conversation in Israel in the first century because A number of people who took the Old Testament seriously would have debates about what was most significant inside of the Old Testament. And the reason why they would ask that is because there's a lot in the Old Testament, right? There's 39 different books. And inside of those 39 different books, you know how many commands there were? Just think about it for a moment. How many commands are in the Old Testament? I know somebody's going, there's 10. Okay, there's at least 10. The Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, the whole deal, right? There there were ten commandments, but there were more than ten. How many were there? There were 613 commandments 
in the Old Testament. Now, those 613 could be broken down in two very large categories, the first of which would have been 365 to don'ts. Don't do this, right? 365 of those. But in addition to those 365 to don'ts, there were 248 to do's. There were a lot of to don'ts and a lot of to do's. And that's more than most people could remember. I mean, how many of those 613 can you spout off, right? You might get 10, you might get 12, you might get 15, but 613, who could grab onto all of those, much less live them out? And so those who took the Old Testament seriously in the first century began to divide and reduce that 613 down to a more manageable number. And oftentimes, they would do so by, by basically dividing into two large categories, what they called the heavy commandments and the light commandments. The heavy commandments were the really significant ones that they needed to make sure that they did. Those would have been things like the Ten Commandments. But the, the lighter commandments were commands that related to a number of other issues that they considered to be just not quite as important. And so one common way in the first century that they would do is they would, they would divide the 613 and reduce it down to some number of heavy commandments. But when the lawyer comes up to Jesus, this lawyer is basically saying this, Jesus, out of all of these commands and out of all of this Old Testament, can you tell us what matters most? Can you point out maybe the one command? Can you give us the cliff notes on the commandments, Jesus, so that we could get this right. And so he comes and he asks this question about what matters the most. Now, what was his motivation in asking that question? If you've been with us for the last month, you know that all of these questions that have been asked have been set up as traps. They were questions that were being asked in order to discredit Jesus in some way, to push him off of the raft. And it's possible that this lawyer came to Jesus and asked him this question in order to discredit Jesus in some way. In other words, he asked Jesus what matters most, thinking that Jesus will answer in such a way to align himself with maybe a few of the scribes, lawyers, and Pharisees while angering a bunch of the others. If he points out a command that one group liked but another group didn't like, if he points out something that one group considered heavy and another group considered life light, it would, might cause a conflict. It's also possible that he was asking, thinking that Jesus might answer with something that's not in the Old Testament at all, and thus show himself outside of their normal tradition. So it's possible that he came. And if, if you were looking for an anchor to, 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 to point that perspective to, it does say here that he came to Jesus to test him in Matthew 22. But friends, it's also possible that this lawyer came to Jesus with a slightly different motivation than the rest of those who asked him questions in these chapters. See, this account is included inside of Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. And in, in Mark's rendering of this account, uh, he includes some other details that I think are really interesting. In Mark's account, it says that this lawyer saw Jesus answer the Sadducees and answer him well. In other words, this lawyer saw Jesus as someone who was providing good answers and thought, maybe I can find direction that I need. And so he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, can you answer this dilemma, this problem, this 
But can you add clarity? Can you tell us what matters most? Maybe he was sincere. Also in favor of that was his general reaction when Jesus answered this scribe, this lawyer in Mark's gospel in chapter 12 says to Jesus, Jesus, that's a fantastic answer. And Jesus even responds to this lawyer in this conversation and says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So he comes, and whether he came to test him or whether he comes in order to sincerely find the answer, he's asking this question, what matters the most? And you know, as we live our lives today, friends, we live our lives in a world where we're not as concerned with the number of commands that are out there, right? I mean, how many of you know how many commands are in the New Testament? There, there may be some that do, but we don't organize our lives that way. What are the heavy and the light? And we don't spend our time debating that. The, the new covenant is operating on a slightly different plane in some of those areas. And so it's not our concern. But I, I, I do want to say that as we gather today, most of us probably would love to know the answer to the question, what matters the most? Many of us in this room would love to find out. If we could ask Jesus a question, what matters the most? Because as we've attended church and as we've read scripture over the years, we've made quite a list of the to-dos and to-don'ts, haven't we? From this stage and from Bible studies that we're a part of, we're, we're told we need to read our Bible, we need to pray. You might have heard we, we, ought, we ought to fast, we ought to give, we ought to, we ought to attend, we ought to, we ought to come. We ought, we ought to care about the poor. We ought to take the gospel to nations all over the world. I mean, there's a lot of to-dos. There are, then there's a number of ethical to-don'ts, right? We, there's a number of things that we have been called to and away from. And as we gather today, maybe we would like to ask Jesus the very same question that this lawyer asked him. Jesus, if you could boil it down for us, what matters the most? Now, when that question comes, I think it's, it's awesome for us to see what Jesus does and does not do. What does he not do? He doesn't say, why don't you figure it out on your own? Mike drop Jesus out. He doesn't do that, right? He leans in. He welcomes them into this conversation. He says, you're asking a very good question. Let me give you the answer. And the answer that he provides has two parts. What's the first part of that answer? Well, the first part of the answer that Jesus provides is he says, what matters the most, Jesus says, loving God completely. Loving God completely, that's what matters the most. We see that in verses 37 and 38. The lawyer comes and he asks him this question, not knowing for sure where Jesus will go, and Jesus goes right to Main Street, Old Testament. He doesn't go to something outside of the Old Testament. He doesn't go to something that is buried in the back of a small New Testament book that was not read as frequently. He goes right to the middle of a verse of great consequence to the nation of Israel. He goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. They are to love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind. Now, this statement was so mainstream that every good Jew of the first century would have known this by heart. And the reason why they knew it by heart was they recited this verse not once a day, but twice a day. In the morning and in the evening, they would recite this verse. 
And not only that, but you remember a number of weeks ago when we talked about what a phylactery was? Jesus makes a comment about those in Matthew chapter 23 and and back in our authentic series, we talked a little bit about that. But those phylacteries were little boxes that were on headbands that they kept in front of their faces. You know what was written on a phylactery? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It was right in front of them. The lawyer comes and says, Jesus, could you tell us what matters most? And Jesus goes right down Main Street. And he says, it's this verse that you have known and you say and you recite. You've got it. It's loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, what was Jesus saying when he said that? Beyond just quoting Deuteronomy 6, what's the point? And what's the point for us? Well, it's helpful for us to look at what is meant by loving the Lord, our God. What does it mean for us to love the Lord, our God? See, when we see the word love, we often think of an emotion, right? That's just the way that we have been taught in our culture. Love is an emotion. It's a feeling. We, we fall into it, right? It's something that we declare at times on like the second date, right? It's, 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 a, it's a feeling. It's an expression. It's, it's transient. That's, that's love in our world many times. But when Jesus here calls us to love the Lord our God, it's interesting that he uses a word for love that is not a, a word that is a transient emotion, but he uses this word for love that is agape. It is a committed, reasoned kind of love. What Jesus is is saying is he says, I want you to commit to God. If you want to know what's most important, it's that you would commit your lives to God. Not just have a feeling about him, not just attend camp, not just have walked the aisle at some point, not just throwing your stick on the fire at at church camp as a kid, but really commit your life to God. That's, That's what he's saying. But he doesn't just say that we are to commit to God, that we are to love him. But he says that we are to love God completely. And the way that he makes that statement is by saying that we are to love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. Now, there is reason why he uses those, and we'll see that in just a moment, but I don't want us to miss the big picture. Jesus says to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind, and Mark in his parallel account adds strength. The reason why we are to love God, what Jesus is getting at, is that we are to respond to God by committing to him completely. In every area and in every facet of our lives, we are called to commit our life to God. Now, the way that he does that is by mentioning these different spheres or opportunities. The first sphere that he mentions is that we are to love God completely by loving him with all of our heart. The heart in a Jewish perspective would have been the place, the center of operations for our life. And because of that, I think it it talks about our volition, our decisions, our obedience, If we are to love the Lord completely with all of our heart, that means that we are to commit our obedience to him. We we get this idea spelled out for us quite clearly in John chapter 14, verse 15, 
which these events happen very close together. Jesus, after making this statement in public about loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, gathers privately with his disciples in John 14, and this is what he says to them. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a a part of our commitment to God that says, God, when you speak, I will follow. Your direction is my direction because you are my Lord. Jesus says we are to commit to the Lord. We are to love the Lord with all of our heart. We are to commit our obedience to him. But not only does he talk about that in terms of our obedience, but he, he also says that we are to love him with all of our soul. What's he getting at when he says that we are to love him with all of our, our soul? Well, that speaks not just of this life, but what endures into eternity. See, our, our lives here will end one day, and then we will usher into eternity. Loving the Lord with all of our soul means that we are entrusting our soul to God who can care for it even after this life is done. If we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, our sins are forgiven, and we have an eternity in the presence of God. Loving him with all of our soul is trusting our soul into his care. If that is something that you have done, then we can echo the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul had entrusted his soul to the Savior. Therefore, no matter what happened, he was committed to being with Christ because Christ was committed to him. Not only are we to love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul, but also we are to love him with all of our minds, with all of our minds, the the things that we think about, the things that we dwell on. It's interesting. Paul says again in Philippians chapter 4, in verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let the the thoughts of God dominate our minds. Let's choose instead of dwelling on us, instead to dwell on him. Loving the Lord our God with all of our minds is to choose to focus on him and his truth. It certainly means marinating inside of God's word. But it also means singing God's truth so that we commit his truth with melody and rhyme to our, mem- to our minds. What happens in your life when things go quiet? I may be unique this way, but I'll tell you what happens in my life when things go quiet. There's a soundtrack that plays. There's a soundtrack that plays. And, and I, I might be singing in the shower. I might be humming a song when I get out of the car. I might be listening to some music at my desk. But when things go quiet, there's a soundtrack. When we fill our homes with the songs of the Lord, when we fill our cars with the songs of the Lord, then what happens is our minds are loving the Lord our God and His truth. We're dwelling upon it. And when we dwell on God's truth and we read His Word and we we listen to His music, when we do those things, then what, what happens is there's a transformation that begins to take place inside of our minds. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable 
and perfect. See, Jesus was saying what matters the most? What matters the most is loving God, committing to him completely in your obedience, in your eternity, and in the things that you think about and dwell upon. That's what Jesus says matters the most. And if he would have stopped right there, he would have given a fantastic answer, right? But he doesn't. Just like he has throughout these interactions, he keeps going. And he tells them one more thing of tremendous significance for their life. Well, what does he say? What's most important? Loving God completely, but there's a second aspect, a second commandment. And that is that we are to love others consistently. We're to love others consistently. And and again, Jesus gets this principle, not from someplace else, but from Main Street of God's Word. He goes right back to the, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, and he goes to the book of Leviticus in chapter 19 and verse 18, and he quotes from it that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. You didn't know that was in Leviticus, did you? Some of you did. You thought Leviticus was just kind of a, a hard book. Well, there's, there's, some, there's a great nugget in there, right? It's, it stands out because no one dies in that verse. He comes and he, and he says that there's a second command that is like the first. In other words, if we are to love the Lord our God with all that we are, if we are to love him completely, then there is something that we will do as we love him completely. And that second thing that we will do is that we will love others consistently. We will love them consistently. I think the idea behind this is really explained for us further by one of the guys who heard him say this initially. That was the Apostle John. And under the direction of the Holy Spirit, John gives this commentary in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Who is created in the image of God, friends? I'll give you a a cheat to pass that test. Turn to the left and then turn to the right. You've just seen those created in the image of God. And that's not just a test that applies in here. It applies everywhere we go. How are we to say that we love God if we do not love those created in his image? There's no way to love God completely without loving others consistently. Now, now where do I get this consistently part? Well, I get it because he anchors it in the love that we have for ourselves. He says we're to love our neighbors, not completely, but he says we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, some modern readers look at this and they want to anchor inside of this a biblical proof for some kind of self-love. But friends, that's not what Jesus is really getting at here. What he's getting at is that there's an assumption 
that we consistently care for ourselves, that that's what we do. When we are cold, we put on clothes to our own bodies. And you know what? We do that consistently. Every morning I, I put clothes on. You can thank me later, okay? It's, it's a, but, but I do that because I'm, I'm caring for myself consistently. Every day I drink beverages multiple times during that day. Why? Because I'm consistently caring for myself. Every day I eat food multiple times a day, sometimes more multiple than I need it to be. Why? But I'm consistently caring for myself. Jesus anchors our care for others, mirroring our care for ourselves to say, just as you consistently care for yourself, so consistently care for others. Not just that we have a nice thought about them, but that our, our love, our agape, our commitment to them is like our commitment to ourselves. That's Jesus's point. Not only does he, does he say that, but he says, hey, and, and guess what? Those two commandments, loving God completely, loving others consistently, all 613 hang on that hook. If, if you are loving God completely and loving others consistently, everything else will happen. What, what did the lawyer ask? The lawyer said, what's the heaviest of the heavy? What can we do and forget the rest? Jesus says, no, it doesn't work that way. If you violate one principle of the law, you violate it all. all. James chapter 2 tells us that. Jesus says, there's a better answer to that question. It's to summarize the contents of the law in two principles, to love God completely and to love others consistently. And if we are doing those two things, we hit both the letter and the spirit of the law every time. That's his point. And that principle is a revolutionary principle in Christian ethics, loving others consistently. Realize all the commandments that we have are, are summed up in loving them. Why do we not commit murder? We don't commit murder because we are loving someone. So we're not going to commit murder. Why do we not lie? Because we love them enough to tell the truth. Why do we not commit adultery? Because we love the one that we are committed to so much that we would not jeopardize that relationship and the integrity of it by being involved physically with another who is not our spouse. Friends, this principle applies to all of the law, and it revolutionizes our understanding. If you want to know what matters the most, if you want to boil it all down to what God's will looks like for you every day, it is to love God completely and to love others consistently. Now, that is real easy to say, isn't it? I mean, well, we, it even kind of rhymes a little bit. I mean, this is, this is, we, we got it down. We could take the notes. But here's the thing, friends. I just want to ask you a question. Can we always do that? I mean, if that's what matters most, can we always love God completely? I mean, are we going to obey him perfectly, completely in our lives? We're trusting in, in him for our eternity, completely, we're never, never wavering in that 
commitment or that belief? Or are we totally thinking only about God's way of perspective or, or does our old pattern of thinking creep back in? I mean, can we always do that? Can we always love others and care for them the way that we care for ourselves? Can we always do this? If that's what matters most, if that's what the standard is, what happens? Well, friends, if you're honest and aware enough of both what that standard is and aware enough with the life that you've lived, then you see a gap between what matters most and what I do. If you don't, then you're different than me. Because when I hear those things and I study these things and I stand up here to to talk about these things, there's a great amount of conviction that settles upon my soul because I can't do those things. But you know who can? The one who answered that question. Jesus can. And he doesn't do it just sometimes. But Jesus always loved God completely. Jesus always loved others consistently, not only in his earthly life that he lived those principles out in perfect lifestyle and practice, but also it's what he is continuing to do even right now. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. He is pursuing you. He has given you his word. He invites you into relationship with him. Jesus has done these things perfectly. We have not. But guess what else? Jesus always desires to deposit his perfection into our lives. When we trust Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, you know what happens? Everything that is within us that has fallen short of that standard was attached to Christ on the cross, and he paid for its penalty there. But his perfection that he lives out, that he is continuing to live out even today, God deposits into the soul of those who trust in him. We see that gap, Jesus fills it. Not only does he always deposit it, though, friends, but guess what else? As we live out our lives right now in this this world, he has a desire to develop in us what he has deposited in us. This process of, of sanctification, of growth in our practice of loving God and loving others. Jesus wants to develop that in us in this life. And so as we hear this passage, we we can be challenged, yes, and we should be challenged. And we can see the direction that we are called to walk and, and what it looks like for us to follow Christ. But as we do that, let's not forget the cross. And let's not forget what Jesus has done and is doing to fill the gap so that our lives can be connected to him forever. Father God, thank you for just the opportunity to to look at this passage today and even just over the last number of weeks to see all these questions that have come at Jesus from so many angles. And thank you so much that he has responded with truth and that it was preserved in Scripture so that we could read it today and be reminded of what matters the most. But also, Father, may we be reminded today of what Christ has done, not just to lay a standard out and watch us fail, 
but to lay a standard out and then invite us to follow him as he fulfills it, develops it, and deposits it in our lives. We thank you, and we pray that each and every heart in this room would just be leaning in, trusting Christ, and following him in love of you, Father, and in love of others. In Jesus' name. Amen.